It's a great honor to stand before you today and deliver God's Word. Uh, Let me read to us uh, today's text, uh, and it comes from the book of Numbers, and it is uh, on your bulletins, uh, Numbers 11, 24 to 30. It reads, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered, gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was in him and put it in the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the the elders of Israel returned to the camp. It's an amazing text. um, And before I launch off into looking at this text and making some observations. Let's open it in a word of prayer, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we come before you, and we confess that you are a good God, a glorious God, a God of amazing love, and you've demonstrated that love um, to us. And you brought us near by the power of your Spirit, and it's your Spirit that dwells in us that is the Spirit of illumination. So we pray that you would Open the eyes of our hearts by your Spirit, that we would be able to see the beautiful truths in your Word, uh, to know that these words are for us, and that they're true, and that they're powerful. We pray that you would transform our minds, our affections, our hearts, and we pray that our lives would bear the resemblance of our Lord Christ more and more, and we pray that you would use us as your instruments uh, wherever we go to bring blessing to this world as you call us to do so. So we pray that you would bless the hearing and the uh, preaching of your word this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let me just briefly introduce myself. My name is John Lee. Um, I minister out um, in the East uh, Village in New York City. Uh, My family and I, we come out here often. It's always a privilege to uh, worship with you and also to deliver God's word with you. Um, I'm sort of a student of this area for the last uh, year or so. I've been visiting a lot of churches, and what I've discovered was absolutely amazing. Uh, Some of the earliest uh, Presbyterian churches are actually on the East End. Uh, The oldest Presbyterian church, maybe the third or fourth oldest Presbyterian church. And the impact that these churches have made is tremendous. Even the Presbyterian Church in Shinnecock, um, they played a very important role in establishing Dartmouth College. So if you think about it, uh, this small sliver of land, um, God has really blessed. And when the people of God uh, took their calling and internalized it and took steps of faith, um, they made an impact not only in this country but worldwide. And it's exciting to think about because... Uh, your church also stands in that trajectory of God's blessing. And I do believe that God wants to use you not only to bless the East End, uh, but the world. And the more I think about that, the more convinced I am of that. And even during my devotions this week, I was looking through the minor prophets, and I was meditating through the book of Daniel. And one of the 
little words that, uh, or phrases that captured my imagination and my heart was when Daniel prayed, um, God heard. Uh, not only did God hear, but God sent his messengers and his angels to Daniel. And when the angel finally reached Daniel, uh, the angel said, you are one who is highly esteemed. And that took my breath away. God said Dan- Daniel was highly esteemed. And when I think about that, I believe Daniel was highly esteemed because he stood for the things of God. He was filled with courage and he was uncompromising. And he would be God's person in that city. And in like my, likewise manner, I believe that your church um, is a church that is highly esteemed and you stand in the flow of God's blessing. And I do believe that God wants to bless this congregation uh, to make an impact that will last for hundreds and hundreds of years or until our Lord Jesus returns. Uh, let me begin then this sermon uh, with two proverbs that um, I love. One proverb says, um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Here's the second proverb. Um, it takes a village to raise a child, or I would add, it takes a village uh, for spiritual formation to take place. It takes a village for Christ-likeness to take place. Now, the passage that we're looking at today, if I put it in its broadest context, is a wilderness passage. Um, Israel is in the wilderness. And there is a beautiful picture of Israel in the wilderness, and it is my favorite picture of Israel in the wilderness, and that is Israel, at its best, is in sync with God. So you recall, in the wilderness, God led his people uh, through pillars, pillars of smoke or a pillar of fire. And when we dissect that imagery just a little, we can, I think, make the conclusion that there are pillars because they represent the legs of God. So these pillars shoot heavenward, and when the pillars move, God is on the move. And when God is on the move, Israel obeys, and Israel is on the move. When the pillars stop, that means God's standing still. At that point, what does Israel do? They stop and they stand still. And as tribes, they encamp around the tabernacle and they worship God for who he is. They are keeping in step with the Spirit of God. And that imagery is picked up once again in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, where we have this robed figure um, with eyes of fire, uh, with this white hair dressed as a, a high priest. And of course, it's the glorious vision of Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? He is standing amongst the lampstand. He stands with his people, and his people stand with him. What a beautiful picture um, of uh, Israel in the wilderness. Now, I wish I can say that that is characteristic of the uh, wilderness passages, but it is not. There are some snippets and pictures and illustrations that are not as encouraging, and the text for today um, happens to fall on one of those not-so-encouraging things, yet at the end... There is still grace. So here's the second picture of Israel uh, that takes place in the wilderness. And that is, oftentimes, they're complaining and they're grumbling. Uh, So Numbers Numbers 11 falls into um, that context where they're complaining and grumbling. And if we had time and we read the whole chapter and the chapter before that, 
um, Israel is making some outlandish um, claims and statements. Uh, they're basically saying, uh, Moses, uh, we're sick of um, eating this thing called manna, and we don't want manna anymore. We want meat. And they say, well, if we recollect properly, in Egypt we had far better food. Oh, we wish we were back in Egypt. And so they are complaining, and they are grumbling. And we see one of the low points of Israel's history here. Uh, we also see one of the low points of Moses. So Moses, the beginning of chapter 11, joins in the chorus of complaining, and he offers a prayer to God. But when we look at that prayer... Uh, there is this spirit of complaining and grumbling as well. And this is what he says to God. Why have you brought this burden upon your servant? What, I have, what have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give birth to them? Why do you tell me to carry in my arms as a nurse carries an infant these people to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? So Moses is basically saying, God, these are your people. They're not my people. I didn't give birth to them. They're the ones who were complaining. Why do I have to live with all these burdens upon myself? And then a couple of verses later, Moses, exasperated, says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy. At that point, we see the wisdom and the grace of God break through and um, God gives instructions to Moses. And those instructions are, well, Moses, I completely understand that the burden is great. So this is what I'm going to do. Uh, get 70 elders, bring them to me, and I will take some of the spirit that is in you and transfer it and put it upon them. And they will help you carry that burden. That brings us to our text today. So what does Moses do? Well, he's... He complies, he believes in the word of God, and so he gets uh, the 70 elders. And the 70 elders on an appointed day will come before the tent of meeting, and God will transfer the, some of the spirit that's in Moses and put it upon them. And so that day comes, and what happens? There's only 68 people there. Uh, two people are late. Uh, their names are recorded here. Their names are Eldad and Medad. Um, so they're known as the latecomers, and sometimes that resonates with me because I'm not the person who's always on time. I'm pretty good, but once in a while I am late, so Eldad and Meddad lives in me, and probably uh, some of you um, as well. But what happens? These 68 people, um, they get the spirit, and there's a, there's, there's a visual and auditory representation that they have the spirit, and they begin to prophesy. I don't know what exactly what that means or what they said, but the people see and they can verify and they can testify that they have the Spirit of God. And so they prophesy and they're um, surprised that they do this. Eldad and Medad, who are in the camp and they're late, they too begin to prophesy. And there's a young boy that says, Moses, Moses, these, these two people, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying. And then Joshua, son of Nun, um, who is the right-hand person of, of Moses, and he's a very godly person, he says to Moses, let them stop. Tell them to stop. And then we see Moses' frustration and maybe a little bit of his anger flare up and say, and he says to Joshua, are you jealous? And he goes on to say, I wish that all God's 
people were prophets. And so we have this little passage tucked away in the book of Numbers. And I believe that God is trying to encourage us in our wilderness experience with this beautiful and powerful truth that God's longing is Moses' longing, and ultimately in Christ it is fulfilled that all God's people will have the Spirit of God. And therefore they can do the work of ministry and bless this world in a tremendous way. And so when we look at the rest of the Old Testament, we see that this picture of the Spirit of God being in Moses and being transferred to the 70 elders um, more and more, and it increases in intensity and it increases in frequency until we come to the New Testament. So the beauty of the New Covenant found in places like Jeremiah 31 is that there will be this deep knowledge of God and the, the, the words of God will be written on the hearts of, of people so much so that one person doesn't have to say to another person to know God because they will all know God. And the prophet Ezekiel takes that up and says, yes, those things are absolutely true. In fact, what God is going to do, he's going to take away the heart of stone and he's going to put in a heart of flesh. And on that heart of flesh will be written the words of God because they will be spiritual people and they will be moved to do the things of God. That day is coming, um, these prophets say. And even the minor prophets are saying pretty much the same thing, that one day God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh from the book of Joel. So all God's people will have the spirit of God and therefore can do the work of ministry in an incredible way. And of course, it's fulfilled in the book of Acts. We see in the book of Acts that the spirit of God is poured out upon the church. And so there are tongues of fire over the people's heads. And I, I, I believe that the tongues of fire over the people's head really represents that everyone is a temple of God. And they are a temple of God because the Spirit of God dwells in them. And then we see the exponential growth of the church in a powerful way. But I think if we take a step back, apart from that theology, and we begin to look at some of the key figures towards the end of um, the Old Testament, that truth is hammered home over and over and over again. Uh, some of these big names are people like Ezra. And who is Ezra? He's a, a Babylonian Jew uh, who studies the word of the Lord. I believe he was an administrator in the government, and he was also one who studied God's word, and so a priest or a scribe. And God uses him to bring revival to his people because he has the spirit of God. And who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah is a, is a cupbearer, so he's an administrator. He's not a priest. <clears throat> he's not a Levite. Um, he's just an administrator who knows the ins and outs of the government, but he's filled with courage, and more than being filled with courage, he's filled with the Spirit of God. And so what does he do? He blesses his people, and he builds um, a wall around Jerusalem, and not only that, he sanctifies the wall around Jerusalem, and so the sanctity and the holiness... Um, of God is expanding. It's not just limited to the temple. It's the whole city now. So we see an expansion of the growth of the things of God. And who does it? It's a cupbearer, an administrator, because he's filled with the Spirit of God. And we see the same thing um, in, in Esther. 
And Esther is this beautiful woman who was filled with courage to stick her neck out. And she risks her life and saves her people. And how was she able to do that? She's able to do that because she's filled with the Spirit of God. And same thing with Mordecai. And we see these figures over and over again. And they're not the clergy. And we see these figures over and over again. They're not the priests. They're not uh, the, the Levites. They're these ordinary people that take a stand for God. And they're able to do amazing things. And God uses them to transform each and every one of the communities that they are in. Because the longing of Moses is coming true. And we see that God is in the process of taking that spirit in Moses, giving it to everyone. And therefore, there is a democratization of the spirit of God for the people of God. And so they are filled with God's power. They're filled with God's presence. And therefore, they can minister to people and bless the world. I mean, what... what, um, encourages me even more is just looking at the apostles i mean they were just common people Uh, they might have been successful fishermen there's some um, sociological studies of the sea of galilee and uh, uh, what fishing industry was like there so they might have been successful fishermen but they in the end they were fishermen they were not trained in the laws of moses i'm sure they knew the laws of moses Uh, But they were not scribes. And what did they do? They transformed not only their community, but the world. And how were they able to do that? Because they have the Spirit of God. And so what we see here in a dim way is God's heart and Moses' longing that all God's people have the Spirit of God. And as we follow that trajectory throughout Scripture, we see it um, fulfilled more and more. And so we come to today. And when we come to today, what can we say? I think we have to conclude that the Spirit of God is a reality for the people of God. And when we realize that and take steps of faith, we will inevitably bless the world. Now, there's also a, a little bit of a dark side here I think we need to bring out. And that dark side comes out in, in Joshua. Um, Joshua here is filled with a, a little bit of jealousy. Um, I'm sure he's a little jealous or envious because he's not prophesying. Um, and I can kind of understand um, Joshua's psychology because Joshua has been Moses' right-hand person. And so when God was meeting with Moses in the tent of meeting, um, who was right out there? It was Joshua. And when Joshua, um, and when Moses was talking to God for hours and hours, and uh, Moses was getting encouragement and getting some strategies, uh, Joshua was faithful. And even when Moses left, what was Joshua doing? He stayed there. And you have to understand the psychology of this young man. Why did he stay there? Because he wanted to press in to the things of God. He wanted more of God. And he was a a warrior. Um, He was faithful. He was courageous. And ultimately, he leads God's people. But at this juncture, you can see why he's filled with a little bit of jealousy. He's filled with a little bit of jealousy because shouldn't he have been one of the 70 who received that spirit? But he wasn't. 
And so he says, tell Eldad and Medad to stop. Uh, not only are they not in front of the tent of meeting, they're in the camp and they're late. Tell them to stop. But Moses says, no, I wish that all God's people were prophets. So I think we need to pause there just for a moment because um, when we realize there's a democratization of God's spirit and everyone is a temple of the Holy Spirit and everyone can do ministry, there can be jealousy. Uh, there are rivalries between ministries and rivalries perhaps even within a congregation. Um, but what we need is a magnanimous heart. And uh, I think Moses has that beautiful magnanimous heart. And he has that magnanimous heart because he sees broader than, say, Joshua, uh, the scope of the work. And when you see the scope of the work, uh, you don't want less or fewer people uh, in the ministry. What you want is more people in the ministry. And when we see that God wants us not only to bless, say, the 58,000 people that live um, on the, the South Fork, uh, but the, the 8 billion people or so that are in the world, uh, we want more people um, to have God's Spirit and to engage in ministry and bless uh, this world. But there is that temptation there, um, because sometimes we like to have a monopoly on things, but the truth of the matter is there is... Um, a democratization of the Spirit of God because God is generous and He longs to bless His people and He longs to commune with His people and He longs to be with His people. And so we see that in increasing measure all throughout Scripture. So again, we come to today and today I'm here to encourage you that you too have the Spirit of God. Now, let me give you a couple of um, observations, um, and these are more anecdotal. I don't have hard statistics to, uh, to back these up, but it's my own observation um, just being in ministry. Uh, I used to be a campus minister, and that's how I first started. So in 1995, I started uh, a campus ministry, and, and I did that for about five years. And one of these unscientific studies that I conducted um, in my own uh, mind was um, I asked uh, students in my uh, college fellowship, and we had about 200 to 250 uh, college students, so it was a fairly successful and uh, fairly sizable college uh, fellowship. And I got to know most of them, because uh, I spent a lot of time on campus for at least five years, and even before that, uh, I was part of that fellowship, so I knew the community pretty well. And um, I began to ask people, oh, so what church do you go to, and so, so what youth group did you go to, so on and so forth. So I got to know a lot of the churches in that region as well, and I became friends with them. And I realized something. I realized as I looked uh, uh, 20 years later, uh, in retrospect, that uh, that fellowship produced some amazing church pastors. Um, uh, in New York, New Jersey, California, at least about 20 of them. So a lot of ministers came out. And when we add the elders and the church planting, then it becomes even greater. So God really moved and touched this fellowship in a very special way. And the tangible fruits are here now that we live in 2020, and we can look back the last 25 years. But I would say almost invariably, almost invariably, that those people who did the most for God went to youth groups and churches that did not have a pastor. And they went to youth group and churches that did not have a functioning ministry. And so they would go back home on the weekends and they would be the quote-unquote 
pastor. And they would be, quote unquote, the youth group teachers because they all went to churches that were tiny and impoverished. And there were bigger churches, of course, with thousand members and everything was set. And they're doing great things for God, but they didn't emerge to be the, the pastors and the elders and the church planters and the missionaries 25 years later. And as I think about that, I think there is a spiritual truth there. And that spiritual truth is, while they were struggling and they were seeing little fruit, actually they were bearing great fruit. Seeds were sown in their own hearts. And I think they, in, in that struggle, they began to understand something. They began to unlock something. And they began to see that they too have the Spirit of God. And perhaps because it was necessity, because they didn't have things, they just had to do it. And as they were doing it, they were fumbling. And as they were doing it, they were stumbling. And as they were doing it, they were insecure. But God was with them every single step of the way. Because God's heart and longing is always to give himself to his people. We just need to receive it. We just need to acknowledge it. And so years pass by, decades pass by, and God makes godly men and godly women who understand and know his voice. And so I look 25 years later, and they are doing amazing, amazing things, but they all grew up in churches that had almost nothing. Why? Because they understand the truth that they have the Spirit of God. There's a democratization that has taken place. Here's another unscientific study. Uh, This time it's from Scripture, and it's just an observation um, I love the book of Ephesians. I probably read it about a hundred times. And when I look at the church of Ephesus, um, it is pretty, uh, an amazing church. Um, the Apostle Paul's probably high point in ministry. Um, his most success, greatest success in three years, he says, all of Asia Minor heard the word of God. Um, so the revival that took place in two and a half years or so impacted that whole region and so he can say yeah they pretty much heard the word of god and ephesus is the provincial roman capital and so that's the center point um after mo uh, not moses uh, paul leaves um who comes well uh, paul says i have no one like this person uh, everyone cares for their own interests but this young man cares for the interests of others that's timothy uh, so timothy takes over so if you think about the pastoral legacy of this congregation is pretty spectacular. Yeah, my first pastor is Paul, my second pastor is Timothy, and uh, my third pastor, uh, you know, not too shabby, the Apostle John. So John now is retired because he's exiled in the island of Patmos, and he sees these visions, and he writes them down, and he sends these letters to the churches, and one of the letters that he writes is the church of Ephesus, and uh, he says uh, to the church of Ephesus, I'm sorry, but you lost your first love. And if you don't regain your first love, I'm going to snuff out your light because you don't deserve to have that light because you have no love. Probably referring to evangelism. Uh, not so much love for God, but evangelism to shine that light in the world. So if you look at the legacy of this church, um, the observation is striking. Your first pastor is Paul. Your second pastor is Timothy. Your third pastor is the Apostle John. And you come... Um, you know, 20 years later, they're almost dying out. And, you know, if I were to social, uh, so give a sociological analysis, maybe what's taking place is they had such powerful leaders that they lived upon their legacy and they forgot that they too have the Spirit of God. 
they forgot it's the seven spirits of God, as it says in the book of Revelation, that is given to the churches, given to them so that they can bear light, because they are light-bearing communities and light-bearing people to make an impact in the Greco-Roman world. And because they forgot that, the one who stands amongst the lampstands, the Lord Jesus himself, says, I'm going to take away your lamp because you're not shining. And so what did they forget? They forgot that they have the Spirit of God. And if they can forget, well, we, we can forget too. And I wasn't going to share this, but there's a beautiful uh, depiction of this, that the Spirit of God and the witness of God are intertwined because in the book of Zechariah, there's this picture of a lampstand, and this lampstand is connected to these olive trees, and there's these basins where it collects the oil. And so when you theologize it, the, the fire and the oil that burn on the lampstand is the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God bears witness to the world and to God's people of the reality of God. So what must the church do? It must shine. It is a light-bearing community. And the church of Ephesus forgot it. They lost it. And so God warns them, shine, shine, shine. This is who you are And I've given myself to you. And you are saturated in the Spirit of God. Everything you need to shine, you have. I think a beautiful counterpoint to this is the New Testament fulfillment. Jesus sends out the 72. And what does the 72 do? Well, they go and bear the light of Christ. Because they too have the Spirit of God. And we know that they have the Spirit of God. Uh, even though the Holy Spirit hasn't been given from the perspective of Acts, but in an incipient way, the Spirit of God breaks through, and Jesus even says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky as they cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel and make an impact. And so they rejoice because they too have the Spirit of God. Absolutely amazing. And this is the life to which that God has called us as well. Now, in preparation, um, you know, I, I preached this sermon one time, I think about three years ago, uh, but I wanted to do a fresh preparation for, for today. So um, I looked over my notes uh, one final time yesterday at Starbucks, uh, and um, I got out my iPhone and did a little bit of calculation Um, And I did some calculations and did a little bit of Google search in terms of population and demographics. Um, So there are 58,000 people on on the South Fork, I think, um, until 2019 or so. Um, And in the summer, it swells to almost 200,000, if those statistics are correct. Um, So if one person reaches another person in a year... There becomes two. And the year after those two people uh, reach out to another person, it becomes four. And the year after those four reach out to another, and uh, the multiplication takes place. So I did a little bit of calculation here. If one person believes that they have the Spirit of God, and they evangelize and disciple a single person in a year... Uh, In 17 years, if that continues, 
you would have reached all of uh, the South Fork. You would have reached 60, uh, you would have reached uh, 65,000 people. One person. Now, if you did that for 20 years, it, it just accelerates. Um, you would have reached 524,000 people. Uh, in 25 years, you would have reached 16 million people. So you would have reached every single person pretty much in the state of New York, believe it or not. And so God does not work um, on a principle of addition. Um, God always works on a principle of multiplication. And so there are many of you, and there are many churches. And so I believe the encouragement that God is giving to us uh, this morning is that we all have the Spirit of God. When we hear His voice, and when we take those steps of obedience, you will be fruitful. People will come to know the Savior. And it can be in less than a minute. Let me give you two stories, and I'll close. Um, one night I was, um, and I am an amateur woodworker, so I was doing some woodworking projects for my school back in New York. And uh, I think I worked like 10 hours straight, and so I was really tired. Um, so I was walking and trekking to the, to the bus stop, and I have my MTA app, and uh, I was just waiting, and I said, oh my gosh, the bus just left. So I had uh, 10 minutes until the next bus came. It was on a weekend schedule. And I was kind of complaining, oh, God, you know, I just missed this bus. This is such a pain. And there was a young man sitting there. And I really felt God's spirit saying, hey, John, I want you to share your life and faith with this young man. So I told this young man, hey, um, according to my app, we have about nine minutes now before the bus comes. But let me share something with you that can completely change your life. And I'll do it in nine minutes before we get on the bus. And he's like, okay, okay. Um, so I say, you know, I'm a minister, and I want to share the love of Jesus with you. And you, I don't know if you know this, but you're a sinner, and you need to repent. And if you do, and so, you know, I probably broke every rule of evangelism. Uh, you know, I'm not the, the smoothest guy when it comes to those things. Uh, but it worked because God led me. And that young man says, yeah, I'd like to believe. And I say, so, well, let's pray the sinner's prayer, and let's um, believe in Jesus. And so that person came to faith that night in nine minutes. I'll give you another story. Uh, just two days ago, um, I was in, um, just to show you how God accelerates things, um, from the basement to floor four. So just think about five floors on an elevator. I was with this, 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 uh, one of my neighbors um, in my building, and he just had surgery. And I said, hey, uh, Michael, uh, I'm also a minister, and I know you had surgery, but I do believe that God can heal you. And he was limping. So I said, Michael, before it hits fourth floor where I get off, I'm going to pray for you really quickly. I'm going to ask that God heals you. And um, would that be okay? And Michael's like, yes, definitely pray for me. So I laid my hands and I prayed for him. I don't know if he's healed. Uh, uh, but at the same time, there was this overwhelming openness for prayer. He wanted it. And so God showed me... You know, it might be a little awkward, but you know what? People want it. They're hungry. And that's why it says when Jesus sent them out, the harvest is plentiful. So we have everything we need. 
to change this world. And my prayer is that when God looks at this congregation, they would say, Grace Congregation, you who are highly esteemed because you stand for Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you that it's not about us, but about you. Uh, We thank you that your Spirit's arrival and empowerment is because of your grace. And we thank you that Jesus went to the cross and he rose again and he ascended. And he, with the Father, has poured out the Spirit upon us. So, Lord God, I pray that we would be a people that know how to receive and uh, a people that know how to flow and keep in sync uh, with your Spirit. So when you move, we will move. And when you stop, we will encamp around your tabernacle and worship you as you show us through Israel. And we pray that the next seasons of the church, there will be an acceleration that uh, uh, the Ethan maybe has never seen before. And we pray uh, for hundreds and thousands of people to come to know you. Um, raise up uh, the 70, uh, the 72. Uh, raise up people of your spirit that uh, hear that voice and take steps of faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.